Welcome to another episode of The Solar Podcast. Today, Dave is speaking with Alex Dang, Senior Director of Project Finance at KWH Analytics. Join us as they discuss the intricacies of solar project financing, the critical role of insurance in getting projects built, and the new catalysts for solar growth. Let's get started on The Solar Podcast. Well, welcome to the Solar Podcast. I'm Dave Anderson. Thrilled to have with me today, Alex Dang. Alex is actually, for the last eight years, he's been working with KWH Analytics, uh, specifically um, uh, focusing on project finance, but also on insurance products. And it's something we've never actually had a guest on our podcast before to talk about the assurability of the products or why there would be, be it, why it would be necessary to have an insurance product. So, Alex, you have a pretty expansive and extensive solar background. So, obviously, you're a natural fit to come on the podcast. Welcome so much. I'm sure there's many things I missed on your beyond biography. I'd love for, if you wouldn't mind giving us a little bit of an overview about who you are and some of the things that you've worked on in the past. Sure. Happy to be here, Dave. Thanks for having me on. So I've spent about a decade in the solar industry, primarily on the sponsor and developer side, starting with the smaller scale projects, commercial, industrial, uh, behind the meter. So anything from uh, your campus energy projects to uh, rooftops on top of industrial facilities. I moved my way to the larger scale, utility scale projects uh, with standalone uh, projects that are feeding into the grid directly and on the finance side. So I would work closely with development teams. They would bring me projects that are ready to be funded. And along with my teams, I would take those to the market to uh, get the dollars to get them built. And for the past two and a half years, I've been at KWH Analytics with a little bit of a different focus, taking my experience in project finance and applying it to a novel set of insurance products. Because one of the challenges I had as a developer and financier is the availability of insurance and just how important insurance is to getting these projects financed. Yeah, we should definitely talk. We'll, 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 I, I think that these funds uh, tend to be a little bit of a black box for most people, even people that spend a lot of time in solar, understanding really all of the intricacies and all of the different players that are necessary in order to be able to get a fund put together. So maybe if we want to just rewind a little bit and talk about your early days CNI and maybe even the large utility scale things, what were, uh, you know, typically to put a fund together, maybe if you wouldn't mind just helping our, our listeners understand what are all of the kind of key and core components to putting a fund together? Yeah, for sure. So there's not a one size that fits all for funding these projects. And the developers I worked with in the past actually run the gamut. So one of the developers I was with was actually backed by uh, institutional money through a fund. So that dynamic was a little bit different. You had a uh, third party investor that had committed capital. They said, we will invest X million of dollars through you, the developer, and you you as the developer are then responsible for going out, getting the land, finding the uh, people to build it, and getting all the required permits. And then what we would do is the investor money is really just one piece of the puzzle. In these projects in the US, there's typically three sources of capital. You have your fund or investor money, and that's your equity, just like equity you would have in your house. Uh, you have your loan 
or uh, term financing. That's very much like your mortgage on your house. But then there's a third slice which we would raise, which is called tax equity. And that's interesting because you hear a lot about the federal incentives for renewables and solar in particular. And that is really how the tax equity uh, is is funded is through the IRS. So the projects generate these tax credits that you have to then monetize. So it, it's really filling out those three buckets. So in one flavor of that, we had that uh, equity capital pre-committed, and then we would go out and get the debt and the tax equity. At another shop I was at, the equity came more from the owners and the founders, and they had a debt facility, so pre-committed debt. So you had two of the three, and then the focus was on going and getting that third bucket, the tax equity. And on the other end, I also worked at a place where all three were really up for grabs, and it was incumbent on uh, myself and my team to go out and raise independently the cash equity, tax equity, and debt, so all three pieces. So there's really not a one-size-fits-all when it comes to funding these things. It depends on your relationships, what you have already locked in, and what is uh, what are the remaining pieces to uh, fill out. Yeah, and I guess there are different structures, whether it's the terms that I think people are pro probably most commonly here are things like leases, long-term le operating leases, uh, obviously power purchase agreements, which ostensibly they uh, look the same. You're making a payment for the use of the system or for the, uh, for the electricity that the system produces. Um, or you can have a prepaid version of either of those as well. You can prepay for a lease. You can prepay for a power purchase agreement. Um, but the idea is, is that there are different players that can maximize the value of either the tax attributes of the system or uh, there are people that have low-cost funds that can fund these project developments or these projects um, and then be able to sell electricity back to the end user for less uh, than one, the cost of their capital, but less than the cost of the electricity that these uh, end users would would otherwise have to pay through these operating leases or power purchase agreements. And so it's a it's been a fantastic way to grow renewable energy by being able to get energy closer to the end user, uh, being able to set up these systems such that yeah, you're not having to use the the grid. You can use something that's a little bit more micro, a little bit more local to the site, and then obviously get the cost of power down. Um, now, there's a part that doesn't get talked about that often, which is the insurance component of putting one of these funds together. So maybe, uh, in fact, I would say that most of our listeners are probably learning right now for the first time that there is, an, uh, in fact, a, a necessary component of having insurance. It's not always necessary, but almost always it's necessary to have some version of an insurance product for these funds. Give us an overview about why the insurance product is necessary and also what does the insurance uh, product cover um, and, and why is it a key component to putting these funds together? For sure. So insurance has for a long time been very similar to how you and I think about insurance is you don't think about it until you need it. And then when you need it, it's all that you can think about. So for these kind of projects, these are ranging from single million to multi-hundred million dollar investments. So lots of money being deployed by different parties and lots of value in the investment to protect. So what we say is that the if the asset is uninsurable, then it is unfinanceable. So it really is that 
intertwined with the financeability of the project, which is then, of course, required to actually build the thing. So insurance is really fundamental to the way you manage the risk of a solar asset and ultimately get it built. So the the paradigm for thinking about insurance used to be that, okay, my lenders, my financing parties, just tell me what insurance I need to get in order to secure your money, and I'll go out and get it. And that used to work. That used to work until a couple of things started happening over the last few years. So some of the listeners may be familiar with the Midway uh, asset in Texas. So that one was unfortunately hit by a catastrophic hail event several years ago now, and it was almost a complete loss. What that really demonstrated to the industry is the importance of insurance and how quickly insurance can retreat because that was an unexpected event. There was a single insurance company insuring the entire site. So they were on the hook for all of the losses. And that had a reverberating effect in the industry. So this one insurer takes a big loss on an asset. And all of a sudden, that has a chilling effect on the industry. They say, hold on. Maybe I can't just insure every solar site that's out there. Maybe I need to think a little bit more about the specific risks like hail, hurricanes, wildfires, all the things that you hear about in the news that are tied to climate change, all of the extreme weather events. They're actually getting talked about in the insurance market first because it's the insurers who have to say, hey, I'm going to stand up to and guarantee that this project is going to uh, be safe from or insured against these kind of events. So Midway was really a turning point for the solar industry where insurance became, it went from a check the box requirement, oh yeah, I can get whatever insurance I want, to really a fundamental piece of how developers and financiers think about not only development, risk allocation, but about financing as well. Yeah, I'd love to talk broadly about what the underwriting criteria is. I think you've alluded to it a little bit, but it's been in the news recently about Florida homeowners having a difficulty just getting insurance because of hurricanes and the occurrence or, or, or the prevalence, pervasiveness and frequency of, uh, of hurricanes there. How does the solar industry, if you wouldn't mind just kind of giving us an overview, how does the solar industry sort of think about solar insurability in Florida? And uh, maybe you can give us a, an idea of the magnitude of like in terms of underwriting these policies, the cost basis difference of something that maybe, and I don't even know that Florida is extreme, but it's just, you know, maybe you can give us an example of an extreme market where the underwriting criteria is such that the cost of insurance is very high compared to a market where it's maybe much lower for different reasons. Yeah, for sure. Florida is a good example. The Gulf Coast in general, anywhere that would be subject to Hurricane risks, um, we're seeing it now. Hurricane season is starting earlier, lasting longer. Um, a hurricane recently hit California, which none of us have expected. I don't think I've had a single hurricane hit California in my lifetime up until Well, uh, I think one. it's the first since like 1930. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's definitely in all of our lifetime, we haven't mm -hmm. experienced that. So the the weather patterns are changing. The magnitude of storms are becoming uh, more extreme. We saw hail 
earlier this year uh, around Arkansas, and that had a devastating effect. Um, we're seeing along the Gulf Coast, again, longer and earlier hurricane seasons. So that really does have a disproportionate impact on the insurability of uh, of certain assets and certain risks. So I can speak generally and then a little bit more specifically, because in insurance, uh, just like you can have insurance for different things when you buy a homeowners, right? In homeowners, you're separating your homeowners from your flood insurance, and you're separate from your auto policy. Uh, it's the same way with solar is you are insuring different pieces of risk. So there are different requirements for things like named windstorms, your hurricanes out there, your hail, you have different limits and different requirements uh, to get those done. And out of Midway, again, is when a lot of the insurance consultants, the different uh, lenders, financiers said, hey, maybe we need to require that folks carry more hail insurance or need to require more uh, named windstorm insurance. And that for a lot of projects, and I've been in those shoes, is you start to think of it as, okay, well, my costs are going up which was absolutely true. Uh, we saw a multiplying of the insurance premiums over the last five to six years in, uh, in the renewable industry. What has begun to happen in markets, and I don't want to it would say in the Gulf Coast, don't want to pick on Florida, but areas that are along the Gulf Coast as well, or areas that are uh, prone to hail as well, those areas you're finding now you can't even get the coverage that you need for those specific risks. It's not that you can get it at a very high price. It's that insurers are saying, hey, the risk in these areas is not even worth it. So it was, it was a question of cost, but it has gotten to the point now where it's a question, it's a binary question of, can you get insurance at all in these areas that are particularly susceptible to these specific risks? Yeah. So, I mean, so Florida is an example. Gulf Coast is an example of areas where it's becoming increasingly difficult, perhaps, to get insurance. Um, are there some markets where insurance is easier to come by and uh, just because it's more conducive for solar? Or uh, what are some of the markets where insurance is, is, is less of an if and, and more of a cost uh, consideration? For sure. So those are the areas that are, have a history of being far away from hurricanes, hail, those kind of things. Uh, Northeast is a good example. Their premiums are going up, but in the Northeast, hurricanes rarely hit. When they do, they're much less severe as they make their way up the East Coast. And it's areas and markets like that, uh, call it Pacific Northwest, with the exception of maybe certain fire risks, uh, large swaths of the interior of the country, again, outside of that real like tornado valley or uh, the areas that are susceptible to hail. So I would say broadly, those three regions uh, have a much better profile from a risk standpoint and much better understood bounds on what could happen. And that's really what insurance is based on is understanding the what could happen, especially in the tail events and the really extreme side of things. 
Yeah. So we've talked about weather, like major weather events, but what are some of the other underwriting criteria, some of the other things that pose a risk to these projects such that you'd need an insurance to sort of protect against? For sure. So the we think about two areas of risk. One is to the actual plant and property and severe weather is absolutely one of them. But the overall design and siting and the quality of the build and operations all comes into the fold when thinking about underwriting. So it's it, it's a comprehensive view. And that's one thing that we, particularly at KWH Analytics, are pushing the industry towards is trying to think more comprehensively about underwriting. So for example, uh, some folks on my data science team, they put out some research recently in our solar risk assessment that talks about uh, stow angles. So now solar used to be that you would stick a panel on top of some racking and you would make it facing south and it would just stay there, it'd be fixed. Now the majority of sites that are getting built have what are called trackers that actually track the sun. So this is one area where how you decide to track the sun and then ultimately decide to stow the panels, i.e. go to some resting, uh, resting phase, is important to the underwriting because um, this comes back to the wind, hail, etc., and which one is a bigger risk for the site at the time. And our research demonstrates that actually hail's much bigger risk than wind in most cases. So what we do when looking at these sites is saying, okay, what's the overall risk? That's one layer. And what's the weather risk, et cetera. But then we look at, well, how are you responding to that? Are you stowing flat? Are you stowing uh, in a more <laughs> vertical way? And in, how does that stowing regime affect your potential losses? Similarly with flooding, we look at, well, have you put your inverters on skids that are high enough? So have you put enough concrete under your electrical equipment that they can weather uh, a flood of a certain magnitude? Uh, similarly with fires, how something as simple as how often are you cutting the grass? Are you letting the grass become a jungle and then that becomes a tinderbox for fire where it may not even be a weather event that causes the fire. It may be someone is there walking by the site, carelessly flicks a cigarette or something. So it's it's really the confluence of all of these design, operational, weather, siting factors that we take into consideration when underwriting the insurability of a solar asset. You know, I haven't actually, uh, maybe a question for a solar tracker or, or a company that sells solar trackers, but... Um, are trackers now getting more sophisticated such that when it's going to hail or there's a weather event coming that they do, in fact, change the angle of the panels? Because obviously you're not going to be getting much, if any, production in a major weather event like a hailstorm. Uh, that, that they're just not only naturally, prophylactically putting the panels at an angle when they're not in use, but also when a storm is coming that they actually do modify the angle of the panels such to eliminate hail damage? Is that something that's uh, part of the practice now? Yes. And the 
handful of large tracker manufacturers are moving towards that. So they'll have alarms and alerts that are saying, hey, there's an incoming storm and the recommendation is to stow in this, that, and the other way. And it's ultimately up to the operators to say, okay, I hear the alert. I'm going to choose to do this. And what we have found in the same research paper is, yes, you're not going to be producing as much when you do go into the what I'll call defensive stowing positions. But when you look at it over a long enough time frame, it's always better to proactively stow your panels, even if the storm doesn't come through, then risk the chance of having lots of losses due to your site getting battered by hail or getting ripped apart by wind. Yeah, that's fascinating. So uh, we've, we've talked about the actual physical damage that might happen to, uh, at the end of the day, I mean, solar panels in and of themselves don't have any intrinsic value. The value is, is the electricity that they generate and being able to sell and use and produce that electricity. So how much of the underwriting or how much the insurance product is actually just based around just understanding how well um, the, the predictive, uh, whatever software was used or whatever the design or whatever engineering went into making sure that the production is going to meet uh, whatever the standard was in terms of the agreement when it was sold. Is it, it, do your insurance products also cover the production in terms of being able to underwrite whether or not you as an insurance provider believe that the system is going to in fact produce the amount of electricity that the agreement states? Is that also part of the insurance product? That's right. So it's not part of the same product, but it is part of the suite of products that we're offering. So as at KWH Analytics, there was the one section that protecting the plant and the equipment, and then the other side is protecting the generation as you're talking about here. So a lot of this is tied to, again, it comes back to the financing and the building of the uh, plant. So if you remember the three buckets of financing I talked about, the the tax equity, they're getting paid mostly through the through the tax code. So uh, they're a little bit less concerned about the actual electrons you're generating. But the loan that you need to pay back, the term loan, is absolutely tied to how much electricity you're generating and therefore selling. And then the equity investor's return is also directly tied to how much electricity you're producing. So these are sized to estimates. But again, these are always estimates. You have independent engineers, you have uh, internal engineers, and they will run their uh, different programs and come up with what their estimated production is going to be. Um, but at the end of the day, it's an estimate. So therefore, when financing these things, everyone takes a bit of conservatism um, by saying, okay, let's uh, let's put a what we call a coverage ratio on this, right? So they may say, okay, this is your estimate, but we're going to uh, take 1.3 uh, and and take that factor of it. So there's that like 0.3 of uh, the buffer there. So what we do is we started as a data company. So data is our bread and butter. That's how we underwrite. Uh, property and production. So with our proprietary database, which covers over 30% of the US fleet, uh, we know best what an asset's actually going to produce. 
and we can go beyond the estimate. We can look into our database of over 300,000 sites and say, hey, based on similar equipment, similar area, similar installation, et cetera, this is what the cohort of similar assets has produced. And th that way, we're able to come in and provide an insurance product that says, hey, if you were thinking you were going to produce 100 units of electricity, we will guarantee that you will produce 90 units. And with that guarantee, it goes from a estimate to a uh, to a insured uh, amount of production. So with that, the financiers are able to reduce that buffer. So that's the production insurance side of things that uh, we are able to do as well, in addition to protecting the plant property. I guess we're moving a little bit into the secret sauce of KWH analytics, but obviously it's your ability to build these actuarial tables and and something that you can really stand by and stick by and not have to like overly buffer, but you can price these things appropriately given the assessment of risk that you guys can attribute to it, both the 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 macro weather events, but also more importantly, which are difficult obviously to predict, but but more importantly, the generation side of it, which is something that you can actually probably get fairly precise with. Exactly. That's exactly right. So uh, moving, I, I, you know, I would love to geek out and actually look at what those actuarial tables say, but just maybe you can give us a sense. I mean, what, how often is there an insurance claim made on these projects? We've put now, we've deployed, you know, many, many, many megawatts of power, gigawatts of power with solar across the country. Um, how often are there claims made against these insurances? And, and what are the main reasons for claims against these insurances? Yeah, for sure. So I can't speak to other insurers out there, but I can speak to our book of business. So let's start with production. With that one, the financing markets tend to think about uh, what we call p-values. That's uh, probability of exceedance. So mm -hmm. uh, a number that you hear thrown around a lot is the p99. What that simply is, is what is the generation level at which the generation will exceed it 99 times out of 100? So for most people, that's, that's a very safe number, uh, and it's intuitively safe. They say, okay, you know, one in 100 that you're below this, I feel comfortable that this is my worst case scenario. Um, so what that would then imply is that if we were insuring, say, the P99 scenario, you'd imagine that only in one out of every 100 years or one out of every 100 months, whichever way you want to look at it, we're going to be under that level. So what we're seeing is claims at four to five times that rate. So that means that this number that everyone talks about, the P99, is it's definitionally, again, 99% chance of exceedance. It's actually a lot lower than that. There's a much higher chance that the asset is going to produce less than that. And that's due to a variety of reasons, a lot of them tied to this being a quick-moving industry. There's always new technology out there. Panels change new geographies open up and there's just a lot that goes into estimating these things. So we see that the P99 is actually not the 
safe level that everyone thinks it is because we are paying out on claims that uh, at, again, four to five times the rate that you would expect based on just the definition. So that's on the production side. Uh, on the actual plant and equipment side, that one I don't have a great answer to because our pros, uh, our our product is fairly new to the market, so we're in the stage now where we're signing up assets. But that to, uh, that's to say, look, in insurance, you're in the business of paying out claims. That's what you are meant to do as an insurer, and that's what your customers and clients expect you to do, is that you're there when you need them. So uh, for that, the we expect to pay claims on property and all the carriers out there are expecting to pay claims as well. It's just a matter of really understanding that distribution and getting, as you were saying, the actuarial tables right so that the insurers can continue to be there to provide that insurance, the, ins the assurity that people need to build these things and that the asset owners are getting the uh, the insurance and then the ultimate benefit, which is the ability to actually raise the money to build these sites. So uh, that being said, with one being a little bit more of a, uh, I'm not going to call it a guess, but one that's a little bit less predictable and the other being quite, you know, a lot more predictable, which product is the more expensive product for these developers to purchase or these funds when they're putting a fund together? Which insurance product? Yeah, sure. So that's an interesting question because the way that you think about it is slightly different because on the production side, uh, there's an associated benefit that you're getting from your financing parties. So if you pay us $1 for premium, it's going to come out that you're going to be able to raise about $5 more from your financiers. So in that way, the insurance largely uh, pays for itself. Um, and then on the property side, it's again, binary. So you need it in order to uh, secure anything. So it's, it's tied to, it's a binary outcome. You get the insurance and you get the thing built or uh, you don't buy the insurance and you can't get the thing built. So they, it's really comparing apples and oranges as to which is more or uh, less expensive. And then in addition, it's also highly dependent on the asset. So you might have an asset in an area where you say for example, certain parts of California may have very steady and well understood sun patterns. And in that case, guaranteeing or ensuring that generation is going to be more straightforward than guaranteeing the property side, because even though the sun is more predictable, uh, you are exposed to wildfire risk, for example, on the property and plant side of things. Yeah. So maybe moving a little bit more into KWH and sort of like what you do and what your sweet spot is. Uh, do you guys tend to, does your, or does your corporation organization tend to do more project level insurance underwriting or is it more like at a fund level? Uh, said differently, you could take a resi fund that has, 
you know, uh, thousands of homes in it, that you're underwriting a single insurance product for thousands of homes, or you could take a single uh, utility scale project. Obviously, uh, if you're doing a single utility scale project, almost certainly you're going to be underwriting just the project. So does KWH work with both the, the spectrum of like on the utility, sale, utility scale side, working on large utility scale projects and ensuring those, as well as working on something like a resi fund that, that is your really having to build an insurance product that's more like at a, at a fund level? We do both. So we more recently, we've seen a lot of the single site utility scale projects. And that's due to just where the market is going. You saw maybe 10 years ago, their sites were smaller. And now 10 years later, with more money and more interest in the solar space, the projects have gotten larger. So just as the industry has grown and developed, we see now more single site utility. Uh, we actually really like portfolios of residential and CNI projects because when you think from an insurance and also a finance perspective, we like uncorrelated risks because they serve to balance each other. So if you have a residential portfolio that spans the nation, it's very unlikely that you're going to have one risk or one peril that is going to equally impact every one of those residential properties across the nation. Whereas if you have a single site, you're much more concentrated and therefore much more susceptible to individual risks. And you take, for example, a storm. It's U.S. is such a large country. One storm is never going to impact the entire country, but it may just happen to impact your single utility site. So in those cases, we have to take a closer look at the design, the operations, and all the underwriting criteria I talked about specifically because you have one point of risk. So when you have these larger portfolios, you have diversification, which is always good, and non-correlated risks, which is uh, another thing that helps us be able to underwrite and insure those appropriately. Yeah. So just kind of continuing on this insurance product, what's the, uh, I mean, uh, inevitably, I know that it's a binary thing. Like if you can't get insurance, a lot of investors are going to be unwilling to sort of commit their capital, both on the tax equity side, as well as on just the standard equity or debt side. Yet there still has to be some gaps in the insurance, right? So what are some of the gaps that continue to exist where investors are ultimately going to have to bear some of the risk that insurance just isn't going to pick up either because the product doesn't exist or investors have decided it's just not important enough to try to have insurance for it? Yeah, for sure. And again, I'll have two answers, one on production side and one on plant and equipment. So with production, one theme that you hear about that our product doesn't yet pick up, I would like it to pick it up in the future. <laughs> uh, we're working on that, of course, but is curtailment. So you take a market like Ericot or uh, Kaiso, so Texas and California, where there is a extreme build out of solar uh, oftentimes, and I'm sure listeners have heard of the duck curve, uh, which hit California and they say is coming to Texas, but that's when you're generating more solar electricity than the users are consuming. And therefore, 
you get curtailed. So that is done through price signals, but largely speaking, the grid operator says, hey, we don't need any more of this electricity because right now we are exceeding the amount that our users are consuming. So we just don't need any more electricity. So hey guys, stop putting it onto the grid. Um, so that's one area that is harder to underwrite in the actuarial way that we like to underwrite things. So that's one area where the risk does still primarily live with uh, investors and owners. And of course, there's mitigants, right? People have reports on, hey, how much uh, curtailment do you expect? And then they structure around that. And it's something that we are actively right now uh, have a bunch of smart people thinking about, well, how do we make these kind of predictions? Because these are much more forward looking rather than with production, which is much more normal, right? The sun comes up every day, goes down every day. Sure, you might have clouds, you might have some weather, but the uh, solar irradiance and generation is much more predictable. Therefore, looking at past data is much more instructive for the future, whereas these things like hey, when is the grid going to say, we've got enough electricity, that's much more forward-looking, and you have to think about it a different way, because what happened in the past is not necessarily indicative of what's going to happen in the future. So that's on the production side. On, on the equipment side, uh, it is these natural catastrophes. So hail, named windstorm, those sorts of things. Uh, when, and I'll refer back to when I was saying that certain markets are finding it difficult to fill out their insurance requirements for their plants. And where that hits first is in the, uh, in the specific sublimits or the specific coverages for things like named windstorm and hail. The insurance market may say, hey, you can only get X number of dollars of protection here, whereas the financiers are saying, we need Y number of dollars of coverage in order to lend money to your site. And that gap may not be, uh, may not be viable in the market because there may just not be anyone willing to take that risk. So you're seeing increasingly that there's discussions among owners and financiers for amendments to those requirements and saying, hey, guys, we went out there, we tried to secure this insurance for this risk, but we just cannot secure it at whatever price. So at that point, that risk reverts back to the project and is not be able to be pushed out to uh, someone else. Yeah, with the access to the data that you guys have aggregated and put together, I'm, I'd love to hear what, what's an area where you've been surprised in terms of the reliability of solar? Things that you thought, oh, this has certainly got to be a risk and it's turned out not to be. And then maybe on the flip side, something where people think, don't, don't necessarily think about it, something that was a surprise to you perhaps that has been really expensive to the solar industry. Uh, things that we maybe took for granted were not going to be expensive um, in terms of the, the long-term care maintenance or production generation or long-term durability of the product. Yeah, for sure. So I'm going to start with the things that I didn't think of or and not, none of us really thought of would be an issue and then go to the pleasant surprises. So the two that come to mind for areas that we didn't think of an issue are, well, let's start with clouds, right? And clouds are transient. 
most of the time clouds come and they go. So uh, they're passing over. This was particularly uh, important to the southeast region of the United States and as it relates to production. So when you think about production modeling, you have to think about a certain granularity. Are you talking about annual production, monthly, hourly, sub-hourly even? So a lot of the modeling was done traditionally at the hourly level because um, the consensus was, hey, there's no reason to go below an hour granularity. So if we just think about every hour of the day and what the plant's going to produce, then looking at it at an hourly basis is enough. Uh, we then, of course, there was much more deviation from expectations in the Southeast than expected. And that caused us to scratch our heads and say, well, hey, these sites are operational. Things are generally as we would expect on an hourly basis, but yet we're still underproducing. So the answer came to be the clouds, to be honest. So uh, clouds don't usually stay over you for an entire hour, but they may cover you for you know 15 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it may be. So that's where looking at sub-hourly granularity, getting down to even the 15-minute interval is really important for understanding what your site's actually going to produce because once you get down to that level of granularity, you can say, oh, actually, maybe a quarter of by hour, I'm going to be shaded by clouds. That might get just washed out in when you look at it in an hour, but once you break it down to four quarters in an hour, you can say, oh my gosh, I'm actually losing a significant amount of my production for a quarter of that hour. So that's one where the industry then realized this and has moved much more to a higher granularity of production modeling, specifically to capture these kinds of events like clouds. So that's another, that's one. And another area is if we speak about this again in our in our publications, where I think it was one of our contributors that talked about it, uh, was about uh, inverters. So inverters, as a reminder, is what takes the electricity from the panels and takes it turns it from DC uh, that the panels generate to AC, which is what goes into our grid. There were lots of manufacturers, OEMs who entered the inverter industry, some very big names of companies entered the inverter industry and were producing inverters. So people who developed and built and financed uh, the projects based on the long-term performance of these really high quality name OEMs uh, are, were surprised when certain large companies that you would expect to do well in this area actually stopped making inverters and stopped uh, stopped servicing them. So the headline from the report from our contributing uh, partner there was that up to 40% of the inverters that are in the field today are orphaned. And what we mean hmm. by orphaned is their, their OE original their OEMs are no longer in the business. So that was another shock that, uh, hey, the solar industry is not necessarily as uh, straightforward as expected. So is that to say then that the insurance companies are uh, trying to also underwrite the OEMs or the equipments or just that you guys have an approved vendor list or do you guys ascribe or, or, or um, attach 
or associate larger premiums for certain products just based off of the underwriting of those companies? Yeah. So with that one, it's, it's typically, it's typically more binary. It's what is quote unquote tier one, what's insurable. And if you make that cut, then you are able to get insurance. But what it's not going to be different one company to the next, though. I mean, we hear about that bankable. Bankable is the term that gets thrown out there right, all the time. Exactly. It could just it could also be insurable. But um, you know, at the end bankable, of the day, it's insurable. like it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're yeah. they're largely the same the same list, and that's one area where we are trying to differentiate because one thing that if you ask anyone in the solar industry, hey how many of the quote unquote tier one equipment manufacturers from 10 years ago are still around? It's, it's not going to be as many as you would expect. So that's one area where uh, I think collectively as an industry, we could think harder about making those differentiations between the OEMs and who's building the equipment and who's ultimately going to stand by it once it's in the field. Yeah, I guess bad news there is that companies are out of business and there's no warranty coverage or warranty protection. Good That's news right. is, is that most of those companies didn't go out of business because their products didn't work. They went out of business for other more business related reasons. So the products t still tend to work and perform. Solar products That's tend right. to work and perform. But, uh, but yeah, I would imagine how that as an insurer or as a, an owner of any sort of project, that is a, a risk. I mean, we in the resi side have seen lots and lots of customers that have come to us and said, Hey, the company that installed my system is now out of business. I have this warranty. What do I do? And, and so there, there's a, and in fact, I don't know what the percentage is, but um, it's not unlikely that if you were installed 10 years ago, that the company that installed your system is no longer in business and is not going to be able to warranty the product. And so you need someone else. And, and it could be an OEM. It could be a new company coming in and trying to just be a, 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 a you know, play nice and um, gain a customer for not a lot of money. But uh, but yeah, that's an interesting one that had, uh, I hadn't thought of as well. So those are uh, a couple of the examples where maybe surprises, things that people don't necessarily think about in terms of the... Um, the, it, it, from an insurance perspective, these are things that matter, but maybe people don't think about a lot. What about some of the good surprises that maybe you've uh, encountered um, in your time working with uh, KWH Analytics? Sure. Some of the good surprises is how resilient a lot of these sites are, uh, despite some of these challenges. So in aggregate, uh, I was I, I saw a report recently. It's it's in the high 90s percent of sites that have been installed are still uh, operational within the expected sort of bounds of uh, what what the owners expected when they put it in. So uh, the despite all of these challenges, uh, when you look at panels, right, they do degrade. Sometimes they degrade faster than you would expect, but then you almost hit a plateau after which degradation still happens, but it's at a slower rate. And so that to me was really interesting. Some of the test panels that are out there still from, I believe it was the 1950s when they were installed are, are still generating electricity. They're not generating as much as they were, but they are still working. So what is happily surprising to me is even though there's problems with individual 
components, individual pieces, uh, that when you aggregate it together, these sites are, uh, are fairly resilient and they continue to work even in adverse conditions. So especially when ones are designed correctly, that was another uh, interesting thing is seeing some of the reports out of the differences in outcomes of sites in the Caribbean. Uh, when they get hit by hurricanes. So you can see two sites uh, that are subject to the same storm. One will be completely torn up and the other will look like almost nothing happened. And that's purely due to how well they're designed, how well they were operated. So to me, it's really encouraging that with what we have today, we can build sites that can withstand very high wind speed from hurricanes and can be resilient uh, in despite a lot of these adverse effects. So to me, that was what was uh, in a surprisingly good thing is just how resilient these sites can be if they're built correctly. Yeah. And I think that's just a plug generally for the solar industry, right? So one of the big yeah. issues that solar is trying to solve for is grid resiliency, right? I mean, so That's we right. talk about these catastrophes that certainly affect solar panels, but if it's affecting the solar panels, it's affecting the, the grid more broadly. You know, the telephone poles and the poles and the wire, the transmission lines that are outside people's homes and, and outside people's businesses. Uh, when the grid goes down, the effects of trying to get the grid back on is sometimes the, you know, it, it can take, you know, take in the case of like Puerto Rico that was hit um, terribly, obviously, just a right. handful of years ago by uh, by storms. And, and the solution to the grid resiliency problems that they had was, hey, we need more solar. Uh, so it's not to say that solar is not reliable in these uh, hail storms in that the, 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 the Gulf coastline. It's just simply saying that there is risks, uh, like with anything, and, and, and those risks need to be taken into account, both in terms of the risk profiles for investors, but also there's this insurance product that can also help to provide additional resiliency, additional dollars coming in to provide additional grid resiliency, ultimately by allowing for these projects to be built. And so insurance is just a really critical and key piece of, uh, of, of really ultimately stabilizing our grid and stabilizing our access to energy. And I think, again, that's just a really a plug for solar generally that the components work. I do have one other question, though, just coming back to the trackers. So sure. one of the big plugs about solar has always been no moving parts, right? So no oiling, no greasing, no lubing. You just set it on the roof or you set it in the ground and you can kind of just forget about it and you can expect that they're going to work other than maybe some inverter maintenance that's going to come down the line 10 years. Generally speaking, there's not a lot of maintenance associated with these solar panels. Now with the, the with trackers becoming more prominent, um, how do you guys sort of think about that? Because now you are talking about moving parts. You are talking about greasing and oiling and lubing and making sure that these parts are going to work. And is that something that while you certainly get more generation has added to some of the risks on the, the cost of building these facilities and, and, and it's a new sort of, uh, new sort of way of thinking about it from an insurer's perspective? Sure. So the, there are more moving parts in a tracker. So although we're seeing definitely many more trackers being deployed now, there's still a large portion of the market that are fixed tilt systems, especially as you get to more northern latitudes where the benefit that you get from going to a tracker are more muted. And with the price of panels all coming down and the price of other 
pieces coming down, you know, with the exception of some supply chain stuff recently, right? If you look at the larger trend of just uh, and just decreasing equipment costs, it does make sense to put them in fixed position further and further north or further south in the southern hemisphere. So mm-hmm. with a tracker, though, uh, the, benef- the benefits actually outweigh the risks. So with a tracker, there's very rarely going to be a catastrophic failure of a tracker because again these and the sites that use trackers most of the time are professionally maintained and operated but with dedicated uh, operations and maintenance teams who have a maintenance schedule and folks who are on payroll to make sure that they go out and they do the appropriate maintenance to uh, make sure that the trackers are operating so that they are maintained well and the chances for something happening with a tracker are actually uh, when uh, when it goes wrong, it doesn't go very wrong. And when it goes right, it can help you prevent losses like the Stowe programs I was talking about. So with a fixed tilt system, sure, you may not have any moving parts, but you also don't have any moving parts. So you can't avoid the hail by going to a more vertical uh, stance, right? So that's a great use- point. Yeah, exactly. So in the moving park actually allows you to be more defensive. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I guess from an insurer's perspective, it's mostly good, right? So it'd be on the generation side of things. You just want to make sure that when you're underwriting it, that the trackers are being deployed uh, and used to the to the to the best way possible to ensure maximum generation. Um, yeah, it's a great point. So uh, from in terms of catastrophic events or insurable events, it's probably not uh, introducing um, much additional risk. It's really just on the generation side. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So what are some of the things that that have you pretty excited either about financing, about funds generally, about insurance products? What are some of the things, some of the hot takes that you have for us today about the solar industry? Yeah, for sure. So my hot takes, of course, going to be around the financing because that's my bread and butter. Like everyone in the industry, I am very excited about the Inflation Reduction Act and what's coming out of that. We recently reached the one-year anniversary of the uh, passing of the Inflation Reduction Act, and a lot of that it, last It came and went. I didn't even realize it, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> good reminder. I LinkedIn, happy birthday, Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> a lot of that last year has been really digesting, hey, what does this mean? Uh, we're always waiting for guidance. Guidance has now been coming out. So uh, the Inflation Reduction Act really is the biggest catalyst for growth in renewables since uh, since 2009 as America's Recovery and Reinvestment Tax Act uh, that spurred on things like the 1603 cash grant and which really kick-started the solar industry. So th- now is a really exciting time. Uh, the pieces of the Inflation Reduction Act that I think are worth paying attention to specifically are a lot of the one, the different adders that you get for either uh, domestic content or uh, other pieces that are really uh, encouraging uh, developers to use folks who uh, U.S. supplied content, which we're seeing more of, especially in the case where you think about the Commerce Department and their anti anti dumping uh, anti dumping 
investigation. So it's really between that and the tax code in encouraging investment in U.S. manufacturing and U.S. jobs. So that's really exciting. Then on top of that is uh, transferability and direct pay. So as I was coming back to my three buckets of capital, tax equity has always been a market that is dominated by uh, several, a handful of players. Because in order to monetize tax credits, you need a big tax bill to to use those credits against. With transfer, and that necessitated creating these partnerships that are complicated and require teams of financiers and lawyers to set up and understand. What direct pay and transferability does is it, it really democratizes the access to these incentives and tax credits by saying, hey, rather than establishing a complicated partnership where you have to think about capital accounts and uh, you know, deficit off, um, restoration obligations and all of those complicated pieces, you can simply go to your regional insurance company or regional corporate company and say, hey, would you like to buy some tax credits? And just do it bilaterally in that way because of the rules around how you transfer that credit. Uh, and then with the direct pay, this really gives the opportunity for uh, tax-exempt entities to get a direct payment from the Treasury instead of going to these corporate entities in order to monetize that tax, uh, that tax incentive. So what that really does is it expands the market of corporates that are able to buy these credits, and it also creates a much larger pool of capital, i.e. the treasury, to write direct payments for these tax credits that tax-exempt entities can then go after. So those are just some of the things that I'm really, really excited about. And to, just to one last thing, very particularly is the production tax credit ability um, for solar to elect that is also um, very interesting to me because we're in the business of ensuring generation with our generation product, the solar revenue put. And when you go from a structure where you were doing an investment tax credit uh, to a production tax credit where you're actually getting tax credits tied to your generation as opposed to the dollars you spend up front, for us, that puts more of the project value on generation and therefore more of the overall project value in generation. Therefore, our insurance of that generation becomes more valuable to uh, to the owners. So those are just some yeah. of the things coming out of the Inflation Reduction Act that pertain to financing that I'm really excited about. Yeah, the United States has always had a pretty complicated tax code and and certainly in the renewable space, it's no exception. And and we could spend another hour talking about, in fact, we could spend several more podcasts talking about That's transferability right. and, and uh, you know, ways that uh, people are still trying to figure out how to maximize their tax benefits and the tax arbitrage that exists. And, and uh, but, but yes, I think it's fantastic. Solar does two things. One, it, uh, well, solar itself democratizes power, gives more people access to power. One of the things that we love and have talked a lot about on the podcast is, is that anything that's good that's happening in this capitalistic society here in the United <laughs> States has a benefit, has a, has a benefit to the developing, um, you know, world that's still starting 
starting to starting to think about like you know with with close to a billion people not even having access to reliable electricity you know the idea that more people will have access to electricity and access to light access to refrigeration these are all great things and 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 now i think that moving and democratizing the amount of electricity uh, or excuse me the way that tax credits are shared I think that that's a great thing too. It's in some ways, solar's been a benefit or a luxury to to you know the advantaged or people that have big tax liabilities and giving more people access to renewables through by making the tax code um, uh, simpler, such that like nonprofits and non-tax uh, you know churches, these sorts of things um, can can get access to those uh, same benefits without having to have huge tax liabilities. I think these are all great things. Anyway, maybe I'll just kind of end by, by asking you kind of what, what other sort of like bold predictions or, 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 uh, that you, that you might have for the very near term future or things that you're really excited about, particularly either as it relates to KWH analytics or just yourself or just solar generally. Yeah, for sure. So the next five years, we're going to build more solar than we have in the last 20 years. So that is very exciting to me. Um, where I'm seeing us going is you, so I guess taking a step back, I think we're all interested in solar renewables in general because it is a way to combat climate change. So uh, the way that we combat climate change is by decarbonizing various parts of the economy. So what's really exciting is that we are making great strides on uh, the energy side of things. So uh, this can be both industry by allowing mines or industrial uh, users to source their electricity from renewables, either on site or uh, from uh, power purchase agreements. So we're doing a great job on uh, the the that piece of the equation. And that's just going to continue to pick up pace. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, where I think it starts to have multiplying effects is when you look at transportation as well. So we're seeing EVs making a bigger and bigger part of traditional auto companies. Everyone's rolling out the uh, electric vehicles as part of their new lineups. We're seeing more and more folks being interested in buying electric vehicles. Ranges are getting longer. The power stations that you can go and recharge are getting more and more common. So I think once you start to have the power generation piece and the transportation piece uh, going towards renewables and electrifying on the transportation side, then you're really going to see the synergies uh, between the two and really us making bound, uh, leaps and bounds progress on decarbonizing the economy overall, both from electricity generation, transportation, industry, et cetera. So I'm excited for the continued growth and then what synergies there are in the future that we may not even think about today when more things go electric and renewable. Yeah, we've almost certainly not thought about all the opportunities that are going to exist in the next just handful of years. Yeah. That's why I ask people, the smart people that come on the show, uh, for what exciting things they're excited about or the things that they're thinking about. Because, again, I've learned so much from people that have come on the show just talking about things that I've never thought about in the past. And so, Alex, this has been no exception. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and visiting and sharing your hot takes with us both. And, and as well as trying to unravel a little bit for us the complexities of both this project financing and now helping us understand the insurance piece. It's been really just informative for me. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Alex. Thanks for having me, Dave. It was really a pleasure. 